0: Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, one of the things that's always amazed me is just how fascinated we humans are in how other humans behave. Like when you, when you look at all the best-selling books in non-fiction, it's, it's always around these psychology titles around you know why people do the things they do
1: well it's something we all have an opinion about it's <laughs> you know you, you see it in your in your day-to-day life like one of the things that uh, that makes me re- realise why the behavioural science is so popular at the moment is when they're sitting listening to a Dan Ariely speech or something like that, you know, they can nod along the whole way. And, you know, they go, okay, I, I do that. I, that's, that's a mistake well, do you, do you I always Do you think
0: this is in itself uh, evolutionary selected? I, I mean, one of the, I know one of the, the arguments that uh, they made in their book Sapiens about why we beat out the Neanderthals was because we were so obsessed with each other and gossip. <laughs>
1: Well, in, in in the end, so I suppose you think from an evolutionary perspective. So obviously, the, the end mark is you know propagation of your of your genes to put it put it bluntly. But there's a whole bunch of approximate ways. In which um, you know that's realised and you know it's, it's gaining status, wealth, power, and the like. And so, <laughs> so when you're interested in status, gossip's a, a, a great way to you know, assess where where do you lie in this in this whole pecking order and what to assess you do?
0: assess the threats around you. Mm. Uh, I'm having a cup of coffee with uh, Jason Collins, uh, who has a background in uh, evolutionary bio- biology, economics. Uh, he runs the data science team for a, a major financial regulator and he's also a fascinating writer and and writes a column at uh, The Behavioural Scientist. Jason, it's great to meet you.
1: Um, uh, Yeah, really pleased to talk.
0: (laughs) Um, So one of the things I wanted to pick up on today is because, you know, I've been, last few months I've been obsessed with researching and looking deeply into algorithms, AI, and these sort of decision-making systems. But one of the things that you've looked at, which which really struck a chord with me, was the relationship we as human beings have with algorithms. And in particular, our our aversion to any sort of automatic control. And uh, I think in a recent piece, you were writing about The Right Stuff, uh, actually right back to when they first started with astronauts. Um, maybe maybe talk a bit, a bit about that.
1: Yeah, so um, Tom, The Right Stuff, it's a book by Tom Wolfe, and it's, it's an absolutely incredible book. Uh, it's sort of a first part of it is, is around the early test pilots in, in the U.S. Air Force and, you know, the degree of risk that they undertook in their day to day job, plus, you know, their nightlife as well is, is pretty amazing. Um, Tom Wolfe, obviously, he probably gives a lot of his books a, you know, a degree of flavor and oomph that maybe others <laughs> might not give, but, but it's a pretty amazing read. But Main body of the book is around what the, the Mercury Seven, which was the the seven um, people selected to be the first astronauts in the United States, and the interesting thing about those seven is that they were they were test pilots. So these were guys who were before they're um, entering the Mercury Seven program were taking up you know quite often experimental planes and it was really up to them to control the outcomes. It was, right. it was, it was, it was down, down to them. Um, and this is sort of where the idea of the right stuff um, in the title comes from. It's like only those with the right stuff can, can um, be behind this. But when you looked at those early um, flights those early, of, of the first spacecraft from the US, they were, well, the first couple in particular, they were just glorified cannonballs. You know, <laughs> fired up um, and, and, and down they come. Uh, so Alan Shepard, who was the first American to go into space, he spent a grand, grand total of 15 minutes in flight, um, simply shot up come come down.
0: He was basically a chimpanzee.
1: Exactly. Well, he, he was preceded by, by, by a chimpanzee, <laughs> a, a chimpanzee named Ham who had you know, about 18 months in the United States after being extracted from West Africa. So Ham had done a pretty good job in adva- advance of um, Alan Shepard. But the thing, the really interesting thing about this, of course, is that by selecting test pilots, they selected a group who really wanted to have control. Um, you think about sort of other people who might have been more suited for it. So the example that's often talked about here is that, you know, radar operators might have been a better choice for these, these flights. So they're people who, are, you know, passive, passively observe what's going on because that's really what these astronauts astronauts were largely going to do. But instead they had these, these test pilots. And when it came down to it, they really didn't like hmm. to let go of, of the control that they, they were used to.
0: Yeah, these, these were very egocentric alpha individuals
1: definitely alpha males, like the way that Tom Wolfe always puts it, you know, they're, they're drinking and driving and flying and dri- driving and drinking and flying and driving. These are pretty macho guys that, that they like to own what they're doing. So once they sort of, I guess, started the gear of what these first flights would be like, they started to slowly, you know, fight for more control over it, you know, from really basic things. So the initial um, design for the Mercury space capsule didn't have a window. So, you know, they, they got a window finally they could look out of. But what they also wanted is they wanted a degree of control over the flight process itself. So the Mercury space capsule was sitting on the top of a, a, I think it was called an Atlas Redstone rocket. They wanted control over this rocket. So um, NASA basically said no to that. But then there are other parts where NASA, I guess, exceeded to their demands, at least partly. So one of the controls they wanted is what's called the attitude control. So this is the three dimensional orientation of the spacecraft in, in space. Ultimately the automatic controls were, were left in place, but they were given a manual override and the idea was that during those early flights they, they could test the manual override and see if they could spin themselves themselves around in space and slowly but surely they, they got these extra things probably one of the I guess the the adjustments that was of um, you know, Ended up having the largest consequences is they wanted an escape hatch that they could trigger themselves because in the initial design basically the the capsule would land and they could basically either wait to be picked up by the helicopter from the landing point in the ocean or they could sort of you know, scurry up this little tiny tube out the, out the top. But instead they, they wanted basically an emergency escape hatch where they could simply um, you know, disarm this hatch and then blow it open using some explosive bolts when they were ready to get out. A, a slightly more glamorous exit for, for someone after their, after their flight into space.
0: But there was some evidence that actually giving them these manual controls enabled them to actually make a mess of things
1: that, that that's exactly exactly <laughs> right um so what tends to happen of course you you put someone up there in, an, in, in a new toy um give them this extra control and, and they're going to play with it and the consequence of it was you know had had events such as you know just simply burning extra fuel during the flight that they didn't need to so the first couple of flights it didn't matter too much because you know they was simply a, a cannonball trajectory but in in later flights it had had quite serious consequences where um, one of the pilots, um, Scott Carpenter, you know, was quite basically wrong. Sorry, I've actually got the name, got the chat wrong there. Um, one of the other astronauts, whose name will come to me shortly, basically ran out of um, fuel during his, his re entry, ended up overshooting where he was supposed to land, and you know, Walter Cronkite, for 40 odd minutes, was, you know, was basically uh, anticipating announcing to the nation that this astronaut was 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 dead. But the most dramatic example of it was Gus Grissom. So Gus was the the second man man in space, um, so so after Alan Shepard. And when he landed, he got a little bit ahead of himself in the checklist to exit. So he's floating around the water and part of that checklist is disarming (laughs) the explosive bolts on this new hatch that they've got and then disarming a bit early and then and this is there's a lot of debate about this um tom Wolfe used the phrase he screwed the pooch basically panicked and and blew them early but effectively the hatch blew open so you know grissom alleges that it was um some, you know the bolts blew themselves others just yes, maybe he just accidentally bumped the plunger after disarming it but once basically this blew he jumps out and and suddenly um well one the capsule starts taking on a lot of water <laughs> and also since he disconnected his oxygen hose from his um, suit, he started taking a lot of water too. And so over the next, you know, I think 10 to 15 minutes, the helicopter fought this losing battle trying to stop the, the, the capsule from sinking under, under the water. Um, one that ultimately it lost. Um, it, you know, the capsule spent 30 or 40 years sitting down the bottom of the ocean in a few kilometers of water. And Grissom himself was simply swimming around as they were fighting this battle, trying to save the capsule, slowly filling up himself. And you know, people weren't quite sure whether his panicked waving was simply, you know, I'm okay or I'm drowning. But by the time they got him back on board, he was, you know, he was absolutely wrecked and, yeah. and, and was pretty pan- panicked. I think it was pretty fair enough that he was panicked by that point in time. He was. Um, probably not having a particularly good time in the water.
0: So, I mean, there's there's an interesting um, story, but it also I think has relevance to the current algorithmic situations we're in today, mm. because there are there are similar examples of where human intervention, even though they have manual controls, tends to lead to perverse situations. Oh,
1: indeed. Why and is that? Well, I think I think but. Basically, a lot of these places where the algorithms are making decisions, the humans just don't have a particularly good opportunity to, to develop the skills to, to do it. So, so if we go right back to 1954, and there's this is classic book by um, evolutionary, I'm sorry, experimental psychologist um, Paul Meal. He's you know, one of my intellectual heroes, and in this book in 1954, um, clinical versus statistical prediction, he um, looked at this uh, uh, suite of effectively competitions between humans and basic statistical algorithms and these are pretty basic so some of them were simply you know count the number of factors plus or minus and and that's that's your answer so um, a long way from some of the techniques being applied today but across the 20 cases he looked at pretty much uh, every one of them you know the, the the algorithm was superior there were a few draws and one of them if you looked at it very generously for the humans you might have given them them the, the victory but right across them there was the simple starting point is that these simple algorithms are better. So when it comes to then going, let's, let's combine the two, let's start thinking about how does a person say use these algorithms, quite often they, they, they just seem to interfere with them more, more than they should. And whether this is overconfidence, whether this is simply lack of trust in the algorithm, I think a lot, that's still a big part of, mm. the, of the investigation. That that's going on. Um, one of the really interesting experiments in this space, but in fact there's a whole cheer- series of ex- interesting experiments by by this chap and his colleagues, um, Berkeley Dietforst at the Wharton School. And, and in this experiment he had an algorithm that was trying to predict um, Basically, what, was, what percentile would a, would a student end up in their class based on, based on these nine factors? So you look at the nine factors and go, okay, is this student in the 80th percentile or, or whatever it might be? Um, and they got to the practice for a while with, with an algorithm. And this algorithm, basically through the practice, they would see it was better than them. So they'd, they'd know that was the case. But what they'd also see is these you know, algorithms make errors that humans wouldn't make. And those errors seem stupid to us. And so even though they knew in general this algorithm's better, those smaller errors seem to degrade the trust. And so when ultimately these people had got got the choice of using the algorithm or not for money, they just tended to trust their own judgment more often than not. and, and I think what they're doing is they're looking for these stupid mistakes in the algorithm, but they're just over applying it. They're seeing mistakes where they don't, where they don't apply. Confirmation bias. <laughs>
0: yeah, possibly.
1: Yeah. So Paul Mill, in, in his, way back in in that 1954 book, talk, talks about this idea of the broken leg problem. So you're trying to predict if someone's going to go to the cinema in, in a week or so. Your model says, you know, they're going to go to the cinema, then you discover they've got a broken leg. Like clearly that's the point where you should overrule this algorithm. But, yeah you just look across all the research including that which is mentioned and and if we just see broken legs everywhere and ultimately mess mess it up um, far more often than we fix it does does
0: this new era of more data and machine learning change anything or do we you know does, does that minimize or maximize the broken leg problem
1: um, i I think it probably makes it um, even harder for humans to intervene so one you'd like to think that, you know, again, if, if these, these, you know machine learning, AI, whatever it is, is applied well, you should be getting a better starting point decision. There should be less opportunity for humans to find errors. But also, because a lot of them are a little bit less transparent about how they make decisions, it's, it's harder also to learn their strengths and weaknesses and to go, okay, where, where right. should I override? Because you don't know
0: what they're factored in or
1: not. Exactly.
0: So, so, I mean, what I'm thinking is, what are the situations where humans are, mm-hmm. as decision makers, are much better off just leaving the algorithm alone? And what are the situations where it's reasonable for them to anticipate that they're going to need to either intervene or to take the judgment completely themselves?
1: So the starting point I normally go to here is actually sort of where do humans tend to make good decisions? Um, And there are some places where we do. So there's this um, psychologist, Gary Klein, um, who's done a lot of research around simply you know, experts who, who make really good ju- uh, judgments. So his research was covered in you know, Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, among other places. And what he basically found is that when you've got um, decisions where you know, it's repeatable decision, but not only that, there's feedback around, very quick, immediate feedback for learning around those decisions, humans can actually develop um, expertise. And so they're the sorts of scenarios where humans at least have a chance of, of um, being sort of being able to compete with these algorithms and, and spot the problems. Although the funny thing is... When but, you
0: but ironically, I was saying they're also exactly the situations where machines get very good.
1: Exactly. So, 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 so that, that's, that's the one, one dimension. And the funny thing is when you actually look at a lot of areas where you think they'd be good for humans... The feedback's missing. So medical diagnosis is a great one. So think about you're in an emergency ward and these um, people are coming in with chest pain and you've got to triage them based on should they go straight to the emergency care, should they go to just an observation unit or just maybe just a ward where we can just let them have a a sleep for a night before they go home. the person who's there sending them off—they're they're probably not getting sort of a, a you know a list of all these people the next day and said okay what was the actual outcome? And even if they did, you know they're not going to remember that exact person. Right. So that there's not that right and immediate feedback going. You you've been I- I- exactly right. Whereas you know that's you know, as you say like the algorithm can be great there because you can just go and collect this feedback sort of further down the line, bring it all in. So. So that's my the one domain i think about it so the other domain then is this y- your truly messy complex domain um and so in some ways the first space flights had this characteristic yeah. because like although you know it's it's helped quite funny to tell all these stories about you know humans and, and their desire to have control causing disasters but at the same time a lot of those space flights the you know there, there were basically malfunctions in the automatic system, and you know the, the humans had to intervene. So, so John Glenn, who was the first um, orbital spaceflight, so it wasn't just the pure cannonball trajectory, but got to got to go around the Earth three times, basically during his flight the the attitude control which is one of the things they got the manual override started uh, misfiring and, and and causing the the capsule to sort of rotate in all sorts of funny ways which didn't matter so much during the flight because you know you're in space it doesn't matter what way you're facing but when it comes to landing and the final firing of the thrusters to get you back down through the atmosphere it's pretty important you want to be in the right angle so your heat shields um, don't are pointing into the atmosphere, and also you want to go down into Earth. you Don't want to go down too fast; you'll burn up. You don't want to go down too shallow, or you might not. You might just actually skip back out again, back into into orbit. And because of this malfunctioning, he basically had to do the final bit, a bit of lining up, and he and he, <laughs> sa- and he saved himself. And so there are probably these environments where they're just quite new systems where you're going to have to, you know, humans are going to have to be involved. Now, the thing which just makes me uncomfortable about this, of course, is, you know, just suppose you start looking across, you know, these stories of the space flights. And from a scientific perspective, you start going, okay, well, you know, ultimately, does the human interaction make it better on average? You've got a really small sample of of examples there. So we get these great stories of humans saving themselves. But on average, does that human stepping in make make it better? As as a
0: decision rule, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah, indeed.
0: Yeah, and so, so, I mean, and also defining complexity as a situation where humans should be involved is, is also not particularly helpful. Yeah, because there are some situations that are uh, complex but ultimately predictable, mm. and situations that are complex and you just, you know, you can't form a line you know, between the events. Yeah,
1: indeed. So I think about this a lot in the in the business sense. So you've got a strategic decision by by say a, a corporate leader. Let's um, suppose they're deciding to make a, a, you know, should we undertake a merger or with, with this other firm or acquire this other yeah. firm. So from the perspective of, so, so on one hand, it's like, you know, it's, it's a very unique situation. This firm may not have done any acquisitions or mergers before. There's just nothing, there's just nothing there to get a grip, grip on. But what you can then do a little bit is you start to look at what's called the, the, at least the base rate across, you know, say the whole industry. You could go, okay, of, of all of these different, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions that happened across my sector, say, what's the average percentage of them that succeeded in the end? And you can start to go, okay, well, you know, that's a very simple sort of algorithm decision rule that can then maybe lead to a better decision. Um, but then of course, yeah, if you actually start using base rates for something mergers and acquisitions, no one would ever undertake a merger or an acquisition. No. And, and so that's what- Because
0: you're rolling the dice to some extent for a big return. Yeah. Rather than something that's just an average sort of decision.
1: In, indeed, yes. So, so, so the distribution of returns are probably all over the place. Um, you know, how do you even know what that return is likely to be? Uh, but uh, but if you start sometimes just using things such as base rates in those sort of circumstances, it's a, it's a recipe for complete inaction and inertia, yeah. and which in some ways is it's, its own recipe for, for failure.
0: Well, I mean, this is something, uh, you know, a lot of leaders will have a theory around these types of decisions. I think Bezos classically talks about type 1 and type 2 decisions, mm-hmm. you know, where uh, one type are very big, complex, you know, strategic decisions, and the other yeah. the kind of, Decisions that you want to be able to take quickly and potentially even mm. automate. Yeah, you know, because you don't want to slow down thinking about
1: those. Uh, indeed, yes. You said it actually quite often in the, in the behavioural literature as well. Sort of, there's, there's one. Yeah, there's sort of around both both size and frequency, and then sort of you know you form
0: System one and system two thinking, right?
1: You know. Yeah, yeah. In, in, indeed, because well, because each of those, and you depending on your site, you know, the size of the decision and the frequency of the decision will depend sort of whether ultimate, you know. Where you know, system one might throw throw you off or not, and, and the types of protections you might want to put in, and also the opportunity for, for learning and developing algorithms. So you know you got something that's you know repeated a lot, you know regardless of size, you know there's yeah. probably a pretty good case there for trying to automate it. Um, then you start going, okay, if something's um quite rare. Um, you know, perhaps on the smaller ones, but, you know, just flip, flip a coin. Right? Is it you know, how much effort you really want to invest? And then, of course, you start going into these, you know, you know relatively rare, high stakes decisions and, and perhaps, you are know, pretty pretty tough to automate them. So then you start going, hey, well, just what, what are some procedures, processes we can put in place, you know, some, some, some information, you know, say around base rates that we can include to at least temper some of our natural inclinations to, you know, I guess you know, one whether it's I hate using this word um, for various reasons, but you know, to temper my overconfidence, um, you know, my, my optimism, belief in, in success, and so on. Is there a way that at least I can structure that decision so that if I have a natural inclination,
0: well, hire, hiring could be a good example, right? Like mm. If you were looking at either hiring or firing someone, at that point, uh, an information system that would give you some, you know, relevant data-driven information about the person involved. Mm. You know, or people of that type who've what their career path has been in the organisation.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, this again, they like, becomes gets back to the point. So, you give this give a person that information. Does that person do any better than if you simply had some automated firing system? Because you look across a lot of the literature around recruitment, and you know, it's, well, you know, most interviews like they're just rubbish. They they had almost nothing. So once you know, you know, if you, if you, you know, there's some basic features of their, their employment and so on. Um, you know, you know if, they're, if they're a new graduate, you know, you know, whether it's SAT scores or university entrance scores, you, you can know, the look university like a statistical marks. Model yeah, <laughs> for their performance. Yeah, and, and trying to find, trying to find, you know, what is it exactly that the human adds in addition to this um, is, is pretty tough. And this actually gets to the other thing, which always, for me, is the really big issue on this. So I don't doubt that there are probably some people out there who you give them. You know, some time in a room with a person, some basic facts, and they'll probably make a really good decision. They'll add an awful lot to the quality of that decision around hiring, firing, whatever it may be. Mm. But you put the average person who's making that decision in, in, in a room, and, and they're probably gonna make a horrible decision. So it's, it's kind of this question of scale. Mm. So is this something that you can you know, say, look, we actually need a human in this, in this mix. Um, or not it really depends on you know going you know, what are the qualities of this person like you know who 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 are they do they have a structured decision making or, or a degree of knowledge that makes their uh, decision making you know special beyond beyond that of what we could simply get from from an automated system.
0: I guess my my big question around this is that you know, given that we've spent the last X number of years talking about things like heuristics and bias mm. and decision making. If you're now a leader going into the 21st century where you're surrounded by algorithms and more automation decision-making, what should be your approach to problems and decisions? I mean, what is, the, what is your starting point You know, to be an effective human being?
1: Yes. Um, I, I, it's, it's pretty tough, but my, my, my starting point a lot of time is that, and this sort of comes from just that the, there's a natural status quo bias around you know, the current human decision-maker, but it's actually just to actually set up internal competitions and tests so, if you have, you know, if you're an organization that has a reasonably high number of hires, you know, just cr- create um, some algorithms or, or decision rules and the like and put them in competition with the, with, with the people who are making decisions. Right. And, and, and over time, start to go, okay. How, how how good are the decisions of the people that are, that are brought in? You know those that are were, were thought to be better by the algorithm. Do they end up performing better? Do they? You know, assuming you can got some objective measures of performance, but, but it's literally just over time, really trying to see okay. What, try what's trying the to work out which decisions should yeah. be automated. Yeah. So there's this um, book um, work rules by Laszlo Bloch. Yeah. So and there's a section there where they. Know, they've they've really done it. They around the hiring, they they went okay. Let's look across all the people who are making recruitment decisions. Let's look at you know the quality of this quality of their decisions um, the, as individuals and and as groups and so on. And effectively, you know, they're not trying to truly purely automate it, but they've gone okay. You know, it's the aggregate decision making process of a group basically outperforms everyone in the organisation apart from one single guy that they could find who right. who had a particular degree, which of which is knowledge. why
0: now I, I know Google when they're hiring somebody. They actually have to get a second opinion. You know, mm. you can't just have the hiring manager themselves. Yeah, they, they generally tend to have some sort of bias.
1: Yeah, true, true. Oh, so 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 many sort of self well self interested factors. A question of alignment of incentives between the individual, the, the degree yeah degree of just overconfidence in their, again I hate that word but <laughs> um but the degree degree of over certainty uh, in in the quality of, of their their judgment, um yeah. the the degree of reliance on the first impressions they possibly got. I mean,
0: one of the classic tropes in this, in this area is this sort of assumption that somehow magically humans and computers are better together mm. than they are with the computer or the human mm. alone. And the example that's always brought up in this is freestyle chess. Yeah. Um, and I've heard it so many times. And one of the things that fascinated me was, you, know, you wrote recently that there's increasing evidence that that may no longer be as true as it once mm. was.
1: Yeah, well, in fact, I'd say since Alpha was it AlphaGo Zero, um, the the newest iteration of that, like I'd say, I'd say it's purely the case that simply the the chess computer's now now better. But but, but for me, you, you look, the interesting thing is thinking thinking through the the timeline yeah. of, of this of this chess machine. So, you know 1997 was the point where Deep Blue defeated Gary Kasparov. So that's the moment where we go an individual computer defeated this person. But then, of course, we had through the following, well probably through to the last couple of years um, at least in competitions you can see um, a team, so you know we call it the centaur or whatever it is, but the human occasionally making decisions to either overall their chess computer or to um, you know which of multiple computers should they trust um, to make the move ends up went being at the very top of these contests. But, this comes back to the scalability issue for me. So, you might have had
0: an individual there hmm. who was particularly adept at yeah. knowing who to listen to. But Indeed, on but average,
1: that isn't the case. Exactly. So, so mm. I, I had a, you know, a, a Radio Shack chess computer myself back in the in the mid '80s, and back then, I probably couldn't have improved on any any of its moves. And, and so, so probably even back in the mid '80s, the average person shouldn't be touching their chess computer. Um, by the time you got to 1997, like how many people in the world could you pair with Deep Blue and expect them to go, actually Deep Blue, I've got a better move up my sleeve <laughs> than, than you do. And, and and that's just been degrading ever since. So it's kind of this case where we're finding these little couple of edge cases or whatever you call it, outliers of truly extraordinary performance, which I'm going, okay, I, I, They exist, but as a model for for day-to-day work, no, that that chess computer, wherever it was gonna be sort of installed around the world, Pretty much everyone, you're going to go. Don't, don't, don't touch this computer. Just leave it alone. It's going to make much better decisions than you will.
0: If, to... if that's the case, then the real challenge going forward is is not so much trying to figure out optimal performance, it's trying to get comp- human beings not to touch the computers. Yeah, indeed. And, and these researchers you mentioned before from from Wharton, they they actually did an interesting study on that, right? You know, to get people to accept algorithms more.
1: Yeah, in, in, indeed. So, actually, doing a, a, a similar similar task to what I mentioned before, so trying to predict. Um, where students lie in a, in a distribution, um, so the percentile of the students um, based on, on a series of factors. And so what they did there is uh, two, two different groups. So the first group was simply given, you know, some time with the algorithm and then told, okay, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna use your own judgment or are you gonna use the algorithm? And so at that point, a lot of them would just go, okay, I'm gonna go with my own judgment and then, you know, poor, poor performance well, relative, relative to what they could have achieved. But a second group, were given that choice but when they were given that choice they were told okay you don't just have to purely if you choose the algorithm you don't purely have to follow what that algorithm says you have a chance to adjust that algorithm up or down a bit and and they were given three different levels depending on who they were so some were given they could adjust at ten ten percentage points up and down another group five and another group two and so the the first really interesting part was that any of those groups so even if given this you know adjusting two percentage points out of 100 is a pretty weak um, degree of control but given anyone given any of that degree of control they're much more likely to go okay I'm going to use the algorithm so so as a result you've got this real boost in performance there. So when it came to their adjustments, they generally made made the judgments worse again than just leaving the <laughs> damn thing, leaving the damn thing alone. But the fact they were given this this you know degree of control meant they used it. So they did a lot better than those who just simply refused to use it in the, in the first place. And for me, I just, like, it's, it's just very, very cool. This sort of yeah, giving people this you know, illusion of, of control, just,
0: just, just enough to guarantee consent. I, I mean, I often wonder whether elevator buttons or mm. you know stop sign buttons are the same. They actually are not connected to anything. Yeah. but they make us feel like that we're driving the algorithm.
1: Indeed, well, that's that's the, the the funny thing about this. So you've got got a hundred, hundred percent. sorry, ten percent, five percent, two percent. You know, could you have given you know an impression of two percent, but not really anything? And like, how how far could you could you push this? Or it could be you know you think about a self-driving car. So right now people probably want a steering wheel in front of them, or at least you know that's what they'd say. But could you just give them a great big red stop button and that's it? And then of course you know is that button connected to anything itself? Right. Just just this degree of control which makes them go okay. I'm like well. Although, although I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have this there, I know that, you know that there's just a little bit in this that's me.
0: It, it does set the stage for a particularly perverse view of the 21st century organization, which has people in it who have placebo controls on algorithms, <laughs> but are not actually allowed to do anything.
1: Yeah, well, for, for me, it's like, like it actually comes down to organizational structure too. So there's some, some organizations that are gonna to have to really fight to slowly whittle away um, the decision makers. So most of my past experience working with organizations, that there's an incumbent decision maker. Um, And what you're trying to do is first you're trying to show them that there's actually an alternative way of making decisions, so using a a more data-driven approach. And then slowly but surely, even once you convince them, then going, okay, here it is. Um, Are you going to use it? Are you going to tweak it? Can you make it better? So so some organizations are gonna have to really think about that to slowly shift that degree of control to get a better decision making. I imagine there's probably new sort of, I guess, startups and the like who don't have that um, incumbent no. that they've got to get rid of and they can just straight away go to the far better decision-making structure. So I think for me, it's going to be an interesting sort of play between different organizations, those who are trying all these tricks to try and get their internal staff to make good decisions versus those who can just go, look, we can just go straight to the, to the best um, way of, of making these calls. Jason, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for being on the show. Ben been a pleasure. Good to meet you.
0: You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com betweenworlds.